If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the turn of the 20th century until the era of deindustrialization, Coventry was one of the world's most important sites for car manufacture, home to famous brands such as Riley, Daimler and Jaguar. As Coventry becomes UK's city of culture for 2021, the story of its car industry is being retold in a new BBC4 documentary, which is airing tonight, the 17th of May. In advance of the broadcast, we spoke to its presenter, Mark Evans, about how innovation, war and fierce rivalries all contributed to the rise and fall of Britain's motor city. Asking the questions was BBC History Magazine editor, Rob Attar. In in the film, Coventry is described as Britain's motor city. How important would you say it was to the British and even the global car industry? Oh, gosh, hard to to underestimate that. I mean, Coventry was... It's easy now. Hindsight, history allows us, doesn't it, to look back and go unravel 
the proceed of time and go, actually, there are points in the history of anything, our own lives, where you look back at it and go, you know, this, at this point, I made a decision that had a dramatic impact on where I am now, because you can trace it all back. And I think the same is true with the car industry, you know, over 120 years, when you trace it back, suddenly Coventry just keeps popping up everywhere. Not only was it the obvious kind of start for Britain, but the influences of our car industry globally, but also the, the influences from, you know, places like America in the in the design of our cars. The, the industry very rapidly became something global where all companies are competing with each other. The design influences are are being absorbed by different countries as they emerge in one and move to another. And, and you know, Coventry's been at the kind of centre of that. And, and clearly it's been a a roller coaster ride, I, I think is fair to say, for Coventry. But for me, being a local lad to Coventry, you know, I my dad was involved in the in the tractor industry in Massey Ferguson in Banner Lane in Coventry, and and engineering was a world in which I was brought up in. And and you know, I, you could almost smell the motor industry kind of wafting in the wind from Coventry to Warwick, where I lived. Uh, it was something about the place, and even now when I go home. Uh, to see my mum and dad who still live in the same house in Bishop's Thatchbrook, just outside Warwick. And to get there, you drive past the turning off to go to Jaguar Land Rover and Aston Martin. And and in my, my parents' village, almost every other home has a Jaguar Land Rover product in it because most people work there. So it's it's always had this huge, huge influence. And so, and so why Coventry then? Why was it this city that the British motor industry really took off in? Heritage, I think. I mean, you know, f- before the car industry kicked off for centuries, Coventry was the home of artisans and engineers, you know, skilled, skilled people who could do things with their hands. And and it was, I suppose, a natural evolution when one industry disappears for whatever reason, uh, You get, what are we going to do with all these people? So that the entrepreneurs of their day, the business brains, would be going, okay, well, we need to move into this. That's great. Where are the people who can do this that we don't have to completely retrain and have got the necessary skills and knowledge to be able to do stuff? Where can we get them from? Coventry was full of them. So you ended up with the kind of, you know, the weavers and the watchmakers of Coventry suddenly then moving into the transport revolution. And there's a lovely moment in the film where he goes, they got involved in the transport revolution. And you think, we're going to be talking cars straight away. And you go, no, we're not. It's bicycles. Um, And, you know, and uh, that extraordinary fact, in the 1890s, there were 75 bike manufacturers in Coventry, which is extraordinary. And so when does the car industry kick off? Is it also, it's around the late 19th century, isn't it? It's around this time that you have all the bike manufacturers. Yeah, absolutely. So the first car that, that we feature in the in the film is this glorious old Daimler, the Owl, which is one of four survivors and, and the first British-built production car. And this one, the Owl, is the, is the one that sees the road most often still. And... What's amazing about it is, you know, that is 1897. It's it's the, the, the beginnings of the motor industry and, and as what we know it as today. And yet, actually, when you're sitting in it and you're trundling along in it, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just is, is hard to describe unless you've sat in one, that you suddenly realise, actually, it's extraordinarily comfortable. You think this is the first production car in Britain 
And yet, actually, we're going very slowly. We're just trundling down a country lane and it's quite noisy and it's open air and whatever. But actually, even on you know today's potholy roads, it was just a very comfortable car. And and the guy who owns it, Michael Father, said to me, he said, yeah, but you've got to remember, he said, we've been using carts for generations, centuries. We're really good at being able to produce carts that can travel over rough roads. And he said, look at this car. It is essentially a cart with an engine. That is all it is. It has that kind of cart suspension and whatever. And and you you get a sense that, yes, we call it a car, but actually it was a motorised cart at the, at the end of the day with some slightly more comfortable seats. But, you know, it's inc- I think it's incredible to look back and think that was 120 years ago, give or take. And look where we've come. Now, we're now talking today about the end of the era of the internal combustion engine and moving into electrification. And that's incredibly exciting and incredibly important. But I'm part of that generation that most of my life, you know, 58 years, has been spent in a world where we get around thanks to this extraordinary invention, the car, that was powered by explosions in an engine, in a, in a piece of metal. I mean, I just find that so extraordinary. That, that we so take it for granted because today, even in you know petrol and diesel cars, we're so cocooned from that from the engineering because it's so quiet inside. We have all our media interfaces running that 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 sense of being part of a machine we've sort of lost unless you're driving an out and out race car. Yet you go back to the origins of the car and there is something, if you're excited by this kind of stuff, there's something incredibly special about feeling that you are connected to the engineering. I, I coined the phrase a few years ago, which people have now kind of taken on, which I'm very pleased about, and, it, and I call it emotional engineering because it does something to you. It's a, you look at an E-type Jag and even if you don't like cars, the hairs rise on the back of your neck. There's something about it that is a, is a crossover between engineering and art. And that's in what you look at, what you drive, and particularly when you go back in the history of the car, the skill and the craft is more than just science. It, 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 it is a form of art. And, and, and to see people even today now still practising those those automotive artisan crafts that are so essential for these older cars and to restore them and and now keep building them and resurrecting them are still there. You know, human beings, a a biology, an animal, actually able to create and craft these extraordinary things. And that evolution over 120 years, the speed of it and and the dramatic rises and falls are, I don't know, spelled, but I find them utterly intriguing. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the manufacturing process at this point. The early 20th century car manufacturer is just so different from what we understand it to be today, wasn't it? Yes, it was, because everything was very hand-built in in these kind of static workshops where you would have a team of engineers and artisans pouring over the the creation of something where it would sort of evolve in, in, in one space where you'd start with a chassis and you'd bolt bits to it to put on wheels and axles and you'd put an engine in, you'd then have a rolling chassis. That then probably went somewhere else to, to be coach-built that the, the folk who would actually make the bodywork would, would handcraft it. 
by rolling sheets of metal to curve them in two dimensions to to make all the upholstery a lot of the frames for these cars obviously were wooden um, so there was carpentry involved to build what we would see as being the the finished kind of outer body of the of the car so it was all it was very labor intensive um, very small numbers of cars would be produced you know you could be talking 20 a week or something you know at, at most they had the souls of those engineers in those and those artisans in those cars. And again, today, when you get close to those cars, just touching them and stroking them and smelling them, you you get a sense of the utter passion and skill that went into them. And then suddenly, we we started to see the kind of evolution of um, Ford was responsible for ultimately the kind of mechanization and and the production line process to to building cars as a way of just simply producing more of them in an efficient way and that was brought over with the model t in manchester but was introduced by a guy called captain john black who was running a, a company called standard in coventry who brought the first production line to coventry and and this was able to then start producing lots of cars an, an hour and the, and the figures for his production. So John Black, when he brought in the mechanization, the production line process for Standard in Coventry, um, they went in 10 years, went from producing 8,000 cars a year to 55,000 cars a year. Wow. You know, dramatic. And it's, and it's what we now, and there's some beautiful archive in the film of that process. And, and it's now what we accept as being a production line for everything you know, from food to all the bits and bobs that we buy are produced in that kind of way. And it was, you know, way ahead of its time, I guess, in terms of, you know, it was a moving track that that timed to perfection, that with military precision, John Black in himself was a, you know, a military man. And and it was that that sense of everything, you'd know how long a job would take somebody to do and uh, and the production line would move at a speed that allowed that job to be completed so that by the time the evolving vehicle got to the next station it was ready for the next process and it sort of it sort of seems obvious now doesn't it of course that's what you'd do to to be able to produce lots of cars but imagine at the time if you were when you were moving for the people who worked there moving from that sense of spending a lot of time and effort handcrafting something to suddenly all your job was putting on a wheel. You know, you can imagine just from a, you know, a, a personal well-being perspective, you know, we all, I think, today worry about people working on production lines, about the monotony of it and how you deal with that. And again, what was really lovely about the film and, and you know, the history of Coventry is that the car industry in Coventry is, of course, a history of cars and machines, but it's also a history of the people who were involved in them. And one of the really impressive things i think for me in the film was was this character captain john black who was who was clearly a very troubled complicated man uh, but a genius in his own way and and very much a forgotten hero of the car industry no one's ever heard of him um but he i loved the fact that that when we explored and 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 you know learned more about him in the film that we suddenly realized that he was a man who really cared about his workforce he knew them all by name. He wanted to know how their families were getting on. And and I think that, I don't know, it gives you a flavour of maybe what those factories were like. They would have been really tough places to work, I'm sure. But but this man, he was, you know, 
a bit of a dictator in his time in the car industry and I'm sure a very difficult character, but, but ultimately he cared about his workforce and I think that's something we could learn from today. And perhaps the car brand that appears in the film that's most familiar to listeners today would be Jaguar. So how does that that begin? And obviously that this is integral to the story of Coventry, isn't it? Yeah, well, William Lyons, who set up Jaguar, kind of started life, um, well, started life with virtually nothing, really. I mean, he wasn't trained in anything. He wasn't an engineer, he wasn't a designer, he had no knowledge or expertise in the car industry at all, but he was into motorbikes. And he set up in Blackpool a, a company called Swallow Sidecars, and they fiddled about making sidecars and uh, for motorbikes, and then started making bodies for little Austin 7s. And their first car they built was a thing called the Swallow. Uh, tiny, I mean, today, literally a car you can put in your pocket. I mean, they, they are so small. I mean, just t- they make today's m- tiny city cars look huge. But he ultimately could see that there was a, you know, there was a business to be built here and ultimately moved the company to Coventry, which is where it's been based ever since. And the company changed its name to SS, uh, which was kind of slightly unfortunate given the war years. They ended up obviously changing the name to to Jaguar after that. Um, But he was he was in a an extraordinary rivalry with John, this character, Captain John Black, again, which is, uh, you know, every great story needs needs the kind of rivalry, doesn't it, between these two extraordinary characters. Um, and so um, John Black's company and Standard and ultimately Standard Triumph and Triumph, a name that we're all incredibly familiar with, his company on the one hand growing up as rivals to Jaguar in this kind of car race as to who could produce the best cars, uh, and with this extraordinary uh, story of how, in Jaguar's history, and I, I've made a couple of, of big documentaries about Jaguar, and and there's no question there's an engine called the XK, which which most people would agree was the most important engine in Jaguar's history. It's powered some of the most Im- iconic machines I've ever produced, things like the D-Type and the XK120, which was the first car it was in, uh, but also the E-Type. Um, and yet the ability for them to make that engine, uh, William Lyons bought from his rival, who was a friend at the time, they were mates, and John Black sold him the, the machinery to be able to make engines in-house and and pretty much instantly, I gather, regretted that decision because he could suddenly see, oops. Well, I, and we've all made dodgy decisions in our lives, but this was a monumental cock-up. Uh, from John Black that he that he sold the ability for Jaguar to produce this extraordinary engine. And you then have this bitter rivalry between the two of them where Jaguar produced this XK120 that at the time, you know, Clark Gable had one, or at least was interested in one, I don't know whether he actually drove one, I'm, I'm sure he did. Um, you know, so it was, it was Hollywood stars were interested, beautiful car and could do allegedly 120 miles an hour. And then John Black says, well, I need to be able to do that. So he he buys Triumph, um, which ultimately standard Triumph. I've got to produce a competitor and produces a car that is a, uh, called a, a TR1, most people call it these days, but it was a, a smaller car, but uh, a death trap. And and this, this frustration that must have existed always in the back of your mind, knowing that you've given William Lyons and Jaguar a kind of step up the ladder and he had to produce a car, which ultimately the TR1 became the TR2, incredibly successful. 
it went faster than the 120 miles an hour of the of the XK120 and and Triumph did incredibly well but ultimately Jaguar survived you know Jaguar is the global company that we recognize today um and and I I kind of feel for John Black's family and and that kind of dynasty of the fact that they he, he kind of screwed up monument, monumentally again you trace it back one decision that he made changed the course of his whole family that whole business and still on the subject of Jaguar would you say that the E-Type was the ultimate Coventry car that's a really interesting question because until two years ago I would have said yes uh, absolutely, it's certainly the the best recognised the world over. It's it's arguably it's right up there as one of the world's most iconic cars. Um, Enzo Ferrari famously called it the most beautiful car in the world, and it is stunning. I mean, it is it is a. I've always said it's a car that even if you really don't care about cars, you just look at an E-Type Jaguar and go, it is such a beautiful thing. But I, I made a film a couple of years ago about another car pre the E-Type called the XKSS, which were road-going versions of the legendary D-Type race car that, that dominated at Le Mans in the 1950s. Uh, and I would say that is now the most beautiful, the most it's one of the best cars the world has ever seen. And and I was very fortunate to drive one a couple of years ago when Jaguar resurrected nine legendary cars that were lost in a factory fire in Coventry in 1957. Uh, and this was an out-and-out Le Mans winning race car that just had some bumpers bolted at the four corners. It had a wraparound proper windscreen put on it. And basically you were handed the keys and go, you can drive it down the road. Steve McQueen led, was the most iconic owner of one. He had it, it's called the Green Rat that he drove around LA. Um, in many ways, very similar to the E-Type in terms of how it drives. And whether you get in an E-Type or an XKSS, the, the it's an amazing car to look at. My God, it is just the most extraordinary machine to drive. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, you see that incredible archive footage where there are, you know, there are people smoking pipes in the pit lane while somebody else is pouring fuel into a big funnel. I mean, it is just, it's, it, it's extraordinary. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. And something that we haven't yet talked about, but which is really pivotal to the history of Coventry and its car industry is, of course, the Second World War. And perhaps the Coventry Blitz is a thing that people outside the UK might know the city best for. So how much of an impact does World War II have on the Coventry car industry? Well, through the war itself, obviously the industry, the car industry had to kind of pivot itself towards supporting the war efforts. But uh, but the the shadow factory scheme that, that had been set up meant that knowing that kind of war was going to happen, the big companies were had already set themselves up to be able to turn their hand to building aircraft and munitions and and armored vehicles and and so on so its ability again it's you know another another example i think of where the skill base of coventry in terms of people as well as factories and machinery and engineering kit to do it was able to turn its hand to something else um obviously when the the blitz happened uh Sadly, the Blitz, I'm sure, happened because Coventry was so key to engineering and the ability for uh, Britain to produce the, the, the equipment it needed for war. And clearly that didn't escape Adolf Hitler. Um, and ultimately, Coventry paid a very heavy price for it. Um, and it's still incredibly moving to, to walk through the old cathedral and and just just imagine what that must have been like um but p- after the war there was then i think a, a radical shift from pre-war it was you know producing cars was was i wouldn't say you know complete luxury but it was a very aspirational thing you know it wasn't the it wasn't an everyman uh, exercise selling cars to to ordinary people and i think then suddenly the the brave new world after the war of of people having Going, we're going to get on. We that's behind us. The world is going to change, and I think that sense of going into the fifties and the sixties meant that yes, we saw the evolution of cars like the E-Type at one end, but also smaller cars that were were more aimed at everyday people, the likes of you and I, and and we saw that evolve in a way that brought over American influence. I mean, the extraordinary Hillman Minx story and the Roots Company, an incredible. Coventry brand 
that had this very dull kind of 1930s car pre-war. And then post-war, Evolve brings over the kind of American influence of chrome and bench seats and, and column gear changes, and it radically changed it, and it was a huge hit. And to see that sense of optimism uh, grow through the car industry, because the car industry, I guess, in a way, is always going to reflect society because, because people who buy the cars, the market, will drive, in a way, the, the evolution and development of design. And, and clearly, you know, manufacturers here spotted that, that what was going on in America and, again, absorbed it, used it, and, and translated it into the sort of cars we have. And as the years go by, you see things like, you know, for me, uh, an absolute icon of a car, the Triumph Herald, you know, is a, is a car that's got some of that American influence with the wings on the pointy wings on the back and stuff. It was my first car. So, you know, it has a very special place in my heart. And, and in the film, I, I got to drive a Herald on the Myra test track uh, in the Midlands where the Heralds were first tested. And there's, again, a beautiful archive of when they, they tested these uh, Heralds, lo- lo- a big number of them, on the, on the bank track at Myra. And just to go around there and drive it again, you go, you know, it's not an E-type Jag. It's, it's, it's not one of those glorious Alvises from the 19... 19- 30s um but it's a it's a car that people changed people's lives ordinary people's lives you know lots of people will with my age will have stories of having been in one gone on holidays in one you know left their weddings to go on their honeymoons in one i mean it's it's the smell of the inside of that car when i got on the track in myra brought memories flooding back of when I had mine when I was 17. Um, And I think that's, you know, cars are, again, a a part of our personal histories. Uh, And we all go, yeah, I had, oh, yeah, when the kids were born, we had this car. And, you you know, we have pictures of our pets and our families. And we, we have, the cars may not be the focus of those pictures on our mantelpiece, but they're in the background. They're there with us. Uh, and I, and so we all have a connection, and and obviously in in Britain, so many of those cars originated in Coventry. Now, one aspect of the story that I thought was really interesting was the way that these Coventry car manufacturers then got involved in motor racing. So, why were they doing that? Was that mainly about prestige, or was it a way of testing out their cars? Do you know what? I'm sure we'll never really know. I mean, a, a lot of people will, and it makes a lot of sense that that people will say oh well it's it's a testing ground it's a proving ground for new engineering it's a great way of endurance you know you take a car to le mans it's a great way of endurance testing the engineering and and i get that and i'm sure there is a a big part of the reason that manufacturers go racing is is for that reason yes it's about prestige and pr it's a great way if you, if you can win le mans or you can win big races or you can win rallies of course, you will see it in the marketing and the PR that will tell people if the car can do this and drive around the Alps and win this race, then it's going to be brilliant for you to go you know, on your holiday in or go to work in or go shopping in. So that all makes sense as well. But I also think there is a personal interest amongst those who run car companies that they want to do it because it's fun. It's exciting. You know, and if you run a business and you're successful, you're going to go. Why wouldn't I want to go motor racing? If I love, if I'm passionate about cars, 
you want to push the engineering as as hard as you can. And, and I think the morale that motor racing can bring to a brand for the people involved in it is amazing. It, it can, of course, do the reverse, that you can go motor racing and it all goes belly up uh, in, in a bad way and you don't win. And, of course, you can have the negative effect. So it's a very risky strategy because un- until you go racing, you don't really know whether it's going to work or not. But when you hear the likes of the unbelievably cool, brilliant Norman Jewis, who is in the film and the film is dedicated to. I mean, I had the, the joy of, of spending time with Norman on a number of occasions filming. And when you when you hear him talk about what it was like in the 50s and 60s being Jaguar's chief test engineer, um, it was a time when all that passion, all that skill, the knowledge, the craft all came together particularly with the D-type story, where with these D-types absolutely annihilating the opposition at Le Mans in days when it was nothing like as sophisticated as it is now. You know, you see that incredible archive footage where there are, you know, there are people smoking pipes in the pit lane while somebody else is pouring fuel into a big funnel. I mean, it is just, it's, it, it's extraordinary. And, uh, and of course, we feature in the film inevitably that, horrendous crash in 1955 um, that that killed over 80 spectators, the worst crash in motor racing history. But that brought alive, I think, just how dangerous motor racing was in those days. And there's there's a shot where you see one of the Jaguar drivers getting into the car in the pit lane when this crash has just happened over his left-hand shoulder, there's been bits of car flying through the air. There's a fireball. You can imagine the the carnage and the screaming and the panic and the fear. And as the driver gets in the car, he kind of looks over his shoulder at this carnage, but immediately turns around, focuses, sits in the car and accelerates off down the pit lane. And, And I think there's... I don't know, there's something about motor racing that in the spirit of the car has always been there and always will be there, where engineers, drivers, people involved in the automotive industry want to push themselves to the limit. And we're seeing that now, obviously, with the with the growth in uh, electric-powered um, vehicles and racing, whether it be in cars or aviation or whatever. Again, the same pioneering spirit is there we want to prove that that this engineering can do this and and we can push it to the extremes and i think it's kind of just a very natural thing that that people do that humans want to do so i think it's partly pr partly marketing partly development in terms of the engineering but partly because it's fun it's exciting and if you can afford to do it why not and one thing that might perhaps surprise some of the viewers of the program is that actually some of the leading racing drivers were women. It feels like it might be quite a male-dominated um, activity, but it wasn't, was it? There were some really important women in this. There were, but I would say they were still thin on the ground. And uh, and it's always amazed me that, why should that be? You know, why even today, we're not familiar with lots of, of women who race cars at a very high level. And I, I I personally cannot understand why why would that be what, what the skill base required to race cars doesn't seem to me as if it should be gender specific. So what's a joy I think in the film, but we had to look for it. To be fair, was where we, where there were examples of extraordinary women who who were racing, and and we see Rosemary Smith in her 
Hillman Imp, and uh, which <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not using these words, but you know, often described as kind of you know Dolly Bird racer. I mean, some of the photographs and imagery of her with this ridiculous car, the the rear-engined Hillman Imp, which she ended up loving, but in, in her own words, she says was just a terrible car. Um, but and very quirky to drive. But all the publicity photos uh, are not her in a race suit, but her in these, you know, incredibly um, coutured slacks and with a always with a hat. And, and it was just brilliant, absolutely. And she was a clearly an incredibly talented driver. But even if you go, you know, further back to um, to Dorothy, so the so Victor Riley, who was the grandson of William Riley of the Riley uh, dynasty, who's still alive and, and the most lovely man in the film. I mean, he he anybody who watches this film and meets Victor Riley would want him as their grandpa. I mean, he's just the most gentle, beautiful, lovely man uh, who is passionate about his family's history. Now, his mum, Dorothy. Uh, again, was a was an extraordinary race driver, uh, and she's the was the first British woman to complete Le Mans, and she finished thirteenth, and that's never been bettered by a woman since. Uh, you know, and that to me it illustrates why aren't we seeing more women driving racing cars at Le Mans today? It just doesn't make any sense at all. These women were pioneers. They were obviously extraordinary, talented, brave, incredibly brave. Uh, but they could do the job just as well as anybody else. Um, and and it was and it was lovely to be able to find those examples. You know, Pat Quinn, uh, who was William Lyon's daughter. Again, she was a rally driver and a co-driver with her husband at the at the time. Uh, Ian Appleyard, and you know they they won Alpine rallies year after year after year, um, and yeah, I mean, brilliant to see them there. But wouldn't it be great today to see more women race? I mean, there are they are there, but it would be nice to see more of them. And then towards the end of your film, you you start looking at the decline of the Coventry car industry that that happens, I suppose, maybe from the sixties, seventies onwards. What do you think was behind that? Why do you think things start to go wrong for Coventry? Uh, a good question, really. I think it was an era of unrest, industrial unrest. Quality of cars was appalling in terms of production. The, it feels to me like the passion had gone out of it. Um, and and, it, and I'm sure there will be people who say, no, Mark, you're wrong. You know, people did care. But I, you just get the sense that people didn't care about cars and producing them in the same way as they used to. And I think the it became huge business. And almost the the focus on on big business uh, create was part of the reason why industrial relations were so bad and people felt they weren't being valued. And uh, and then the growth of the the car industry on a global scale just sort of overtook Coventry and it just ended up producing poor quality rubbish products that we we even today we laugh about um and I think that's desperately sad we really struggled making the film because we so wanted and I so wanted and Stephen and Nick really wanted to celebrate Coventry's car industry but actually, for a lot of people alive today, the memories of Coventry's car industry is one of it being in utter chaos and failing through the 70s and 80s. And 
And I think that that's really sad because actually the heritage of Coventry is extraordinary, which you know hopefully we show in the in the film. And and I think the really lovely thing is that it has sort of bounced back. It is it's still at Jaguar Land Rover. I mean, gosh, Jaguar Land Rover only a few years ago when we were filming there and filming an E-type story there only a few years ago when, you know, Jaguar claim, senior people claim that, you know, they were going to the bank on a Friday afternoon to get enough money to pay the workforce. They were so close to going bust. And yet within just a few years, they were making a billion pound profit. You know, the ability to turn that round was extraordinary. Uh, and the company is clearly massive. It still has its problems, but it is, like all manufacturers, is moving towards electrification. There is a spirit of Coventry that, that like, it just won't die. It just, Coventry is one of those cities, to me, that you, it's almost like the Black Knight story. You know, it, you, it, you can do what you like to Coventry, but it will bounce back. Um, and it's great to see that now. And, and it's great to see the growth in the modern car industry, but also, you know, the growth from an educational point of view and a training point of view, the, the kind of university's focus on automotive engineering inevitably, you know, because it's such a, a hub for, for the automotive industry. But also we're seeing a real resurgence, I would say, in the last 10 years of the growth in interest in historic automotive engineering uh, and that's not only been reflected in the number of, of um, what I would call artisan companies, the specialists, many of them still based in Coventry in the Midlands, who can produce handcrafted, beautiful bodies for cars, who have the skills in engineering and and uh, leather craft for making upholstery and right across the board of all the skills you need to make vehicles. They are still there, and that's growing. There's more young interest in that to 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 look at that as a career. So you can now train in in those skills as apprenticeships and so on, which again is is fabulous. And we've also seen this slightly weird phenomenon of of the resurrection of some of our historic icons in terms of the automotive industry, where they're now called these kind of continuation cars, the the recreations, if you like, of things like the E-Type lightweight race car, Jaguar's XKSS, Jaguar now produced new D-Type race cars for the first time. Very controversial within the historic car world, but it is helping to keep alive those skills and 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 the knowledge to be able to build these cars, which I think is brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely fabulous because even today, no matter that it's a brand new car, if you stand in Jaguar Land Rover's classic works showroom at Wrighton in Coventry, and they roll out a handmade XKSS that's been built today, but with the same skills from an engineering perspective as they were built in the 1950s, and they roll it out in front of you, it is just as impressive, and perhaps even more so, because now... For me, modern cars are becoming increasingly homogenous. You know, when I was a kid, you used to drive along and I could spot any car on the road by its by its headlights, even at night. You know, we we all, kids, we all used to do that. Now you just go, what's that? Oh, it's one of those. No, it's not. It's one of those. They're all the same and they're boring. Most modern cars are utterly boring. And yet in those days, they weren't. And I think now when you see a resurrected piece of historic automotive engineering in the shape of an E-Type or a or an XKSS 
or whatever car and you stand it next to a modern version, I'm sorry, there is no competition. And then how important do you think the car industry has been to Coventry as a city? How far has the city's fortunes mirrored the rise and fall of the car industry? Um, they've been parallel. I mean, to me, I'm, I'm no expert on Coventry. I was brought up nearby, as I say, but, but you know, and, and I'm sure it's incredibly complicated, kind of the, the story of any city in terms of how it evolves. But, but the car industry, and not just the car industry, that Coventry has been shaped by the people who live there. And the people who live there have historically for a, for centuries had an ability to make things and to engineer things and to craft things. And whether that was in the weaving industry or the watchmaking industry or the bicycle industry or building airplanes and munitions and machines for war through to the automotive industry, um, it's it's human beings who do that. These things don't just evolve; they they get designed and built by people. and And I think that's what Coventry has. It's in Coventry's DNA. Is somewhere in the sequence there is a sequence that that <laughs> creates brilliant engineers, people who are brilliant at doing things with their hands. and And long may that continue. As we've seen, manufacturing disappear, and I think personally that's incredibly sad over the years. How Britain is not the manufacturing powerhouse that it used to be globally. Uh, I, I'm i very proud of the fact that I come from a part of the world where people can build things and make things, and, and, I, and I hope that grows and develops with time. That was Mark Evans. Classic British Cars Made in Coventry will be airing tonight, the 17th of May, at 9pm on BBC4, and it will be available on BBC iPlayer after that. The programme's producer, Steve Humphreys, has written a piece on the Coventry car industry, which is in the June issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.